Well, do you think the day of the SUV might just be over due to gas prices? That, that was the big question this week. Uh, I saw on CNN webpage a poll, and I think they say it's not a scientific poll, uh, whatever that means. But uh, it was an unscientific poll about whether you think SUVs are done. And 65% said yes, you can't do it anymore. And, and apparently, whether that's scientific or not, GM bought into it because GM closed four plants this week that make light trucks and SUVs. This car that's been kind of the, the standard bearer of the American industry for about 15 years now is done. It's over. The, the road of the, the day of the SUV is in its twilight. Man, how quickly things change. But you know what? Emptiness, like empty gas tanks, emptiness does that. Emptiness drives us to making changes. Whether we're talking about an empty gas tank or an empty cookie jar or an empty wallet. But not just in those areas when we've got emptiness in our lives, our marriage, our finances, maybe an emptiness in our, in our whole relationship with God. When we feel that emptiness, emptiness is a, is a powerful feeling. It is a driving feeling and it drives us to changes. Unfortunately, just because we're changing doesn't mean we're helping the emptiness. We can make changes that make things worse. We can make changes that are wrong. That emptiness is powerful. Well, I've got good news for you today. God is in the business of filling up tanks. God is in the business of taking care of emptiness. And that happens through the person of Jesus Christ. Would you look with me this morning in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, fourth book, fourth gospel into the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some spread out there among the chairs. If you look in front of you, you shouldn't have to look too far to see one. We want everybody to be able to open up a copy of the Scriptures and study along. Last week, we started our series on the Gospel of John. We got kind of an overview of the book and an overview of the, the disciple of John. And now today, we're starting. We, we said that we're going to study this book by looking at three sets of seven. There are seven signs, seven witnesses, and seven I am statements. So today, we're going to begin with the signs. And John chapter 2 gives us the first sign. Look with me, John chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant. And they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everybody sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you, you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. 
He displayed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, our story starts there by saying on the third day. What's that in reference to? Well, you've got to go back to chapter 1, verse 43, and you'll notice there the first phrase of that verse says, and the next day he went to Galilee, or he left for Galilee. Well, this is now the third day since he had left. Obviously, he has arrived in Galilee, and he is in a little village. Cana is a, a little do-nothing village. You can't call it a town. You can't call it a city. That'd be too big. This is smaller than that. Probably somewhat of an impoverished village that Jesus is in here. It says that he's gotten there with his disciples. Now, before we start, I think what Rick can recognize a, a little bit of background information that's important. One, you'll notice that the name of Joseph is not mentioned. You know, John does not open with the birth events of Christ like, like Matthew and, and Luke do. And so we never in the book of John see the name of Joseph mentioned. But by this time in his life, you don't see it in the other Gospels either. We see Joseph mentioned, obviously, around the birth events. And then one more time, Luke talks about a time that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to the Passover up in Jerusalem. And Jesus is probably about the age of 12. After that, we never see Joseph again. Now, we don't have any real uh, significant uh, source or tradition that specifically tells us what happened to Joseph or when something happened to him. But obviously, it's safe to assume that somewhere between Jesus being the age of 12 and this moment right here where he's about 30, somewhere in that 18-year time span, Joseph has passed away. He's no longer with us. Another very important thing about Jesus' background, you see in verse 11, it says this, Jesus performed this what? First. You know why that's so significant? There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of writing. As a matter of fact, a lot of the false gospels are based on that. We talked about that some year or so ago when we were talking about the Da Vinci Code. And a lot of these false gospels and some of these writings speculate on what kind of things Jesus might have done as a child. Or as a teenager, did he perform miracles then? Did, did people know who he was? Did he play the God card when he was at school? You know, we ask these kinds of questions and we wonder and we scratch our head. Folks, never underestimate the Scripture's ability to answer your questions. It says clearly, definitively, this is the what? First. There was no miracles as a child. There was no miracles as a teenager or as a young adult. Jesus' first miracle is right here. This is the first place His glory is revealed, is right here. So Jesus and His disciples and Mary arrive there in Cana of Galilee for a wedding. Now the wedding ceremony is a big deal. That's a big deal in every culture, isn't it? And then, of course, every culture does it a little bit differently. Here, the wedding really began with the engagement. Engagement in our culture is not near as big, not near as significant as it was in this culture. It was at the engagement that the families, not just the bride and groom, but the families kind of struck a contract and an agreement. And if that engagement did not make it to the wedding day, that was the equivalent of a divorce. That was the kind of proceedings you would have to go through to, to undo an, an engagement. And so they would go through this in engagement time. The, bride, the groom would go back to his father's house. He would build on to that house and prepare for his family. And then on the day that it was time, he would blow a trumpet. And he would grow, go through town with his family, with his friends, a big procession, often at night by torchlight. And he would go to his bride's house. And she was probably ready. 
And her family and friends would be there and they would come out. And at her house, there'd be speech making. We, we would wish well and give them counsel. And there'd be those kinds of things going on. And, and after an appropriate amount of that, they would then head back to the groom's house. And now the procession not only included the groom's family and friends, but also the, the bride's family and friends. And they would make their way back to the groom's house. And that's where the ceremony would take place. On Wednesday, if the bride was a virgin. And on Thursday, if she was a widow, a second marriage. And then after that moment, they would begin a week-long wedding ceremony, a week-long wedding banquet that that family would provide for other family and friends there in Cana of Galilee. Of course, as we enter our story, we discover that they ran out of wine before they ran out of week. You say, now, okay, what's, what's the big deal about that? In this culture, that's huge. Some of you maybe have traveled to Middle Eastern cultures or cultures like this. Folks, they have a law of hospitality that is huge. I mean, there are strong expectations of what you provide in being hospitable. If somebody shows up, even if you see a stranger in town and you know they've got nowhere to stay, there is a law of hospitality that is going to say what the expectations are there. There's not anything like that in our culture, is there? I can come knock on your door. You can say, yeah, it's not a good time for us. You know, and close the door. And you know what? Some funny thing is, I may not think anything about it. Okay, come back later. Not in this culture. There was no way you would do something like that. Not only would you invite somebody in, but at that moment, the expectation is you would really probably give them the very best you had to offer in your house at that moment. Now, now take what I just explained about this simple idea of hospitality and just ramp it up about a hundredfold and that's what would be expected in this wedding banquet. There are some strong cultural expectations here. And so it is a big deal when they run out of wine. Not only would this be humiliating, folks, this would be something that would mark their marriage. It would be humiliating like forever. That's not the bad part. You ready for this? The couple would actually be liable. It's really hard to point to something in our culture and even try to illustrate what is going on here. You know, when you go to a wedding, what do you take with you? A gift. You, you give a gift to this couple and, and we bring gifts, kind of help this couple get started in life, kind of help them get their home started up. I, I don't know what all kind of gifts they would have brought in this day. I'm almost positive it wasn't electrical appliances. Now, I can't say that for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty confident of that. But they would bring gifts to help this young couple get started. Well, folks, in this event right here, again, this law of hospitality would almost demand that the guests leave with their gifts. And it's not that the guests are being vindictive or mean or rude. It was a cultural expectation. They would leave with their gifts. Now, think about what are those gifts? That, that's that's my bride and I that that's our chance to kind of get off on the right foot that's our chance to kind of get our house up and running and there it all goes so this is a big deal right here in this moment obviously Mary feels some connection to this family and and sees this unfolding and feels some burden and so she goes to Jesus and says you know do something now verses three four and five are interesting verses to me. I mean, they're kind of unique in all of Scripture for me. 
Because when I read these, I am left with the feeling there is a lot more going on in this dialogue between Mary and Jesus than, than I think we can be fully aware of. I mean, when, Jesus, when Mary says, you need to do something, and you look at his response, obviously Mary is asking for a lot more than could you, know, you and your buddies run to the store real quick. No, she's asking for more than that. Now, remember Mary's perspective. Mary may be one of a few of a handful of people who actually know who Jesus is. You know, I mentioned the, the birth events a moment ago. You know, the shepherds knew who Jesus was because the angels up in the sky told them. And, and, and then when you when you in Luke and you go into the temple when Jesus is eight days old and, and we're introduced to Simeon and Anna and a couple of these characters, people knew who Christ was. But folks, that was 30 years ago. Some of those people, maybe a lot of those people have now died. And those that are still alive, well, for the next 30 years, Jesus kind of, he kind of grew up in obscurity. There, there was no news. There was no information. And so even if I was a witness to some incredible events, you know, after 30 years, you tend to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe there was nothing to it. Maybe you just kind of begin to, to forget. You think Mary forgot? I'm positive Mary didn't forget. I'm positive Mary never forgot the day the angel Gabriel showed up in her life. I'm positive she did not forget that night that Jesus was born and the angels came and the shepherds came and later the wise men would come with their gifts. I'm pretty sure she didn't forget. You see, Mary knows, not hoping, not trusting, knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And it looks like what she is requesting here is, son, let's get the ball rolling. Let, let's open this door. Let's begin to reveal who you are. This situation might be a good opportunity for you not to only meet a need, but let's go ahead and, and get it out who you are. That's obviously what's going on because that's the way Jesus responds. And now we come to verse 4. Man, that's an odd verse, isn't it? I mean, at the best, Jesus seems almost completely unconcerned about this couple and their plight. And at worst, doesn't it seem like he's being maybe just a, a little bit rude to his mom? He called woman. And generally speaking, the average lady doesn't take that as a term of endearment. I mean, if you're walking down the concourse and I say, hey, woman. I doubt the thought that's going to run through your mind is we have the sweetest pastor. <laughs> now, the good news is what does not translate well into English in this culture, it's not anything rude or awkward going on here. Woman is a little bit like saying ma'am or, or missus. It was actually could be used as a term of endearment or affection to show you, to give you an example of why Jesus is not being rude here. That's the same thing he refers to her as when he's on the cross. And when he speaks to her from the cross, he's asking John to care for his mom. And he refers to her as woman. Now, obviously, in that moment, he's caring for her. He's providing for her. It's not a moment of being rude. So there's nothing meant by this term. But I wonder if this term is meant to mark something. Because while the term is not rude, as you go through Hebrew literature, 
in, in Greek literature, not just the Bible, but all of Hebrew and Greek literature, did you know that not one time do we see woman being used by a son in reference to her mother? And I wonder if in this term, Jesus is marking the moment. I wonder if he's saying, Mary, do you realize the moment we're about to walk through here? Because when we walk through this door, everything changes. As a matter of fact, mom, it will no longer be my goal as a good son to bear well the image of this family, but it will now be my goal to bear the image of my heavenly father. Mom, as we walk through this moment, I will no longer be known as the son of Mary. I will be known as the son of man. I will no longer belong to you. But I will belong to the people. And it appears to me in this moment that Jesus is saying, let's recognize where we're going. Let's acknowledge what's happening here because he is about to open up. He is about to unfold his public ministry. And even here at the beginning, do you see his focus, his eye for the end? When he says that phrase, my hour has not yet come. That's a reference to the cross. He is right here as he's about to walk through the beginning. He's focused on the end. Eight times in the Gospel of John, he's going to refer to this hour. Five times he's going to say, before John chapter 9, five times he's going to say, my hour has not yet come. But in John chapter 12 and beyond, three times he's going to say, my hour is here. Now, now what changes? Well, chronologically speaking, when you enter John chapter 12, you're now in the last week of Christ. You're, you're now within days of his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. So the cross is here. It's right now. But as they go through this moment, Jesus is very aware when I take this next step, I'm moving directly to the cross. Nothing will change that. Nothing will stop that. There's no going backwards. Now, I think as Jesus calls his mom to recognize this moment, I don't think he's implying that he's not ready for it. I don't think he's implying that his mother's not ready for it. But folks, as far as looking at doors in Scripture, this may be the biggest door we see. This is an eternal moment. This is an immense moment that puts the Son of God on a path to the cross. And he says, let's recognize this. Let's understand where we're going. And then you get to verse 6. And his mom says, do whatever he says. Now that verse is kind of awkward. It kind of makes you scratch your head and go, did, did you hear anything he just said? Now I don't know what all Mary was understanding about this moment. Or, or what she was understanding about what Jesus was saying. But I do think Mary's saying this. I know you know the situation. And I trust you will do what is right and good. And with that knowledge, with that faith, she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. Now, the, the scene tells us that there's six stone water jars there, 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water, isn't it? That's a lot of jars right there. Now, notice it says they're for purification. Okay, These jars are a part of a, a religious ritual a religious ceremony that took place before they ate. They, they would pick up these jars and they would pour water, basically roll their sleeves up and, and wash basically from their elbows to their hands. You say, well, that's not, that's not being religious. That's just good hygiene, is it? Just washing before we eat? No. 
It may have been smart to wash before we eat, but this was a part of a number of things that were religious rituals to try to purify myself before God, to cleanse myself before God. And, and this was just one of a number of religious things they would do to wash. And there's, I mean, there's a lot there, but why is there a lot there? Because they're at a big wedding banquet. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of washing that's going to be done before a lot of meals. So they've got these six jars there. They're, they're ready to go. Now, here's what's real interesting. And obviously, the Scripture makes it very clear that you know these are not just six jars. These are for purification. Because if the guests who enjoyed that wine, if they knew that wine came out of these jars, they wouldn't have drank it. If they knew that wine came out of these jars, they would have been offended. It's a very interesting choice that Jesus is making here in his containers. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So Jesus tells them to fill it with water. They fill it up to the brim. And here we're just seeing God do what God does. God takes us from empty to full. God takes us from valueless to incredibly valuable. As, as Jesus multiplies here and does a great work of transformation. After that transformation, Jesus tells the, the servants, or actually before the transformation, Jesus tells the servants, dip some out, carry it over to the chief servant. And somewhere between them dipping it out and carrying it to the chief servant, and I don't know how far they had to walk, but somewhere in that process of them carrying it over there, by the time it hit his lips, what is it? It's wine. Man, a, a miracle has happened. And you know what's interesting is how few people know. I mean, certainly at the moment, the only people that know are Jesus, his mother, Mary, the disciples, the servants, they know. As a matter of fact, the story concludes and we're really not given any clues that, that everybody else found out. It was just really kind of a, a small set there that knew what happened. Now this chief servant, kind of an interesting character. It's kind of a difficult word to interpret in the Greek language. Chief servant, head waiter. But even then, that, those terms in the English language don't explain the function that he fulfilled. He was a lot like a best man. And his job would be to kind of understand what the, the bride and the groom wanted to accomplish in their ceremony and in, their, in this week of wedding banquet. And then he'd kind of make sure that things ran well. He'd make sure that, that things unfolded like they wanted. But you know what his number one job was? Wine distribution. It was his job to make sure things didn't run, the wine didn't run out. It was his job to make sure everybody had enough. It was his job to make sure everybody didn't have too much. If people were having too much or it was running out, he would actually dilute it, pour some water into it. So if, the, if there's a wine problem, he's got as much problem as does the groom. So you notice what a big to-do he's making of this great wine that's been brought out. Well, folks, at the end of this, the chief servant looks pretty good too. He's kind of drawing kudos to himself by saying, look at this, look what's come. Now let's talk about Let's talk about the wine for a moment, can we? I mean, this is a little bit. I mean, we're Baptists, right? I mean, doesn't it kind of look like Jesus is providing kind of like for a big cake party here? I mean, this is kind of uncomfortable for us. What's happening here? Well, the problem, folks, in understanding what's happening here, because people do use this to, to say that, that, that the Bible, that the New Testament, that Jesus is all for drinking, all for big party moments like that. 
And I would say, well, to, to, to a degree, that's true. But you have to understand their word, their concept here of wine and ours is very different. What we buy at our store and what they're drinking is very different. They are drinking grape juice that has been fermented. It does have alcohol in it. I'm not, I'm not saying that it doesn't. But it has a very low, low content of alcohol. You would have to drink a ton of this before you began to get drunk. Your bladder would burst long before you had a buzz. That's not the purpose. Do they have alcohol in the New Testament that'll get you rip-roaring drunk? Yes, they do. But that's not what this is. That's not what the wine was. This is not a, a biblical thing I'm talking to you about. This is a historical thing. This is a cultural thing that I'm talking to you about. Wine was their daily beverage. They did not go to the store and find an aisle 150 feet long of, of beverages and drink choices. They didn't have all that. They had fermented grape juice that they would use. And it was a daily drink. It was not for the purpose of getting drunk. When we read about these wedding ceremonies in culture, in history, they were not drunken brawls. They were not drunken festivals. So that's not what Jesus is providing for. That's not what he's multiplying here. When we take our grape juice, we put it into a distillation process. And that, you know what the distilling does? is it ramps up the alcohol content. We do something actually unnatural to it to bring up and get a high alcohol content, whether we're talking about beer or wine or, or hard liquor. That's not what they're drinking there. That's not what's being provided for. So Jesus takes these six pots of, of water, and now we have, what, 120, 180 gallons of wine? Do you realize what just happened? Not only has he solved a problem, and not only has he taken care of a need, but the story kind of implies we're at the end of the ceremony here. The week's almost done. There's more than enough wine here to provide. Now this couple more than likely is going to be able to sell this. So they've not only gone from having no wine to having all the wine they would ever need, they've not only gone from about to lose their gifts to being able to keep their gifts, but with this wine, they're going to be able to sell that and more than likely, now they've got a large nest egg to kind of get their home and their lives started with. That's what God does. God provides. He provides abundantly. He more than meets the need. And Jesus is revealed. He's God. He can transform. He can provide. You know what's interesting? Is that the way he enters ministries, much like the way he entered this world, I mean, there wasn't a lot of, if you think in terms of a, of a world scene, there wasn't a lot of hoopla with his entrance into this world. And he was born in Bethlehem, another little do-nothing town. Nothing happens in, in Bethlehem, and, and just a few people really knew what happened in that moment. Now we see him entering his public ministry. He's in this little tiny village, handful of people see. But look at what the result of the sign is. The believers are strengthened in faith. The believers grow in their belief. You know, I think there's something important about the size, about what's happening, to realize Jesus is not a traveling circus. Jesus is, is not coming before man. As we talk about Jesus revealing himself, he's not up here to do a song and a dance and, and say, hey, come follow me. I'm better than all the other gods. I'm better than all the other religions. Come see what I can do. And if I really impress you enough, then you'll come follow me. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to impress unbelievers. 
Jesus comes to change the lives, to bring a radical transformation of those who want to know God. And we see that happen here in Cana. Not revealed in the, in the palace of Rome. Not revealed in the temple of Herod. But here in Cana. What do we do with this? What, what are we to take away from Jesus turning water into wine? This first sign pointing to who he is. What's that mean to my life today? Three quick things. Number one, Jesus can abundantly provide for our physical needs. I mean, is that what's happening here? There's a physical need in this young couple's life and he provides for it. And by the way, notice he does care. You know, sometimes we don't want to take our prayers to God because we think, gosh, God's so big and, and he's taking care of the whole universe. And, and, you know, what's this little thing? What's this small thing in my life? And yet, look at what's happening here, folks. We are at the intersection of eternity. Jesus is actually pointing, pointing to the enormity of this moment, the eternity of this moment. And in this moment, he does care about this young couple and their need. And he provides and he provides abundantly. Philippians 4.19 says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus can do this in our lives. That's what's being revealed. Let me ask you a question. Do you have an area of emptiness? Area of emptiness in your life? It may be the gas tank. It may be in the wallet. Maybe it's in something like your marriage or a, a troubled relationship. Maybe you kind of feel empty in your whole direction in life. What's happening? Where you're going? How things are, are taking place? You know, I wonder, wonder what Mary would say if, if she saw the emptiness in your life. I mean, she knows who Jesus is. She knows what he can do. What would she say? I think she would look at you and me and she would say, Do you believe in him? Do Whatever he says. Second point. Jesus can abundantly provide for our spiritual needs. Folks, it is very purposeful that Jesus grabs these purification jars. Do you realize he's doing? He's going right into the middle of our religious rituals. He's going right into the middle of our religious ceremonies. These things that we do that we hope will make us okay before God. These things that we do that we hope will, will clean away our sin and make us okay. These things that we do to make ourselves feel better. Oh, I've done that. Oh, you know, now surely God is happy with me. That's what Jesus goes right into the midst of and does this miracle. That's where he makes his transformation. Because that water is never going to wash away the sin. All of our purification ceremonies, all of our religious rituals are not going to make us right before God. That's why Jesus goes right into the middle of that to do his transformation. And he changes that water into wine. Now, is the wine, is that what's going to clean us? No, but what's that wine going to become representative of in the New Testament? We're, we're going to come back tonight and celebrate the what? The Lord's Supper. And that wine becomes representative of his blood. And it is that blood that transforms. What's it do? It takes us from empty to being filled with God. It takes us from no value to eternal value. It changes me from being an enemy of God, a sinner before God, to being a child of God, to being able to stand righteous before God with eternal life. 
It's not my religious ceremonies. It's not my religious rituals that give me that opportunity. It is the transforming work of God. And that's what Jesus is revealing right here. That is the first sign of who He is and what He wants to be in your life. He can provide abundantly for your spiritual needs. Oh man, how do I get Him to do that in my life? Will you believe? Do whatever he says. Third and last, not maybe the only thing we should take from this story, but to end today. You know what? With Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Isn't that part of what's being said here? I mean, I mean, surely the victory of this story is that you go from emptiness to 180 gallons of wine to fullness. But a big point being made here is look at this. Look at this. The best It's here at the end. God had given wonderful and good and perfect things to his people. The law of God, the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets. But the best, the best was being revealed right here. And that he gave his very own son, Jesus Christ. And you know, when Jesus comes into our life, even then, even then the best is still yet to come. Oh, yes, I'm provided for in Christ abundantly, physically and spiritually. But you know what? God, ultimately, his promises are not about this world and the things of this world. Ultimately, God's promises are about something to come. You, I mean, you realize the strength and the peace and the joy that is to be found that no matter how good or how bad this day is, the best is still out in front of me. There's always joy, always hope, because the best is still to come. Man, how do you get that in operation in your life? Will you believe? Do whatever he says. He said, Pastor, you, you keep saying do whatever he says. What, what are you talking about there? Can I say something that I genuinely mean lovingly, but can be kind of ugly? Where are there areas of emptiness in your life? Is it in your wallet, in your marriage, in your vocation, in your direction? Folks, wherever there's an area of emptiness. That's a place you're not doing what he said to do. Whether it's our marriage. He's told you what to do in here to find fullness. That doesn't necessarily mean always the marriage that you want, but a fullness in dealing with that marriage. In your finances, he's told you everything to do in here to have fullness. I didn't say wealth. I said fullness in your finances. You got somebody betrayed you, somebody that's hurt you, that's leaving you empty. Everything you need to know to find fullness, it's right here. But you won't do what he said. And you know why you don't? You know why I don't? Because we don't believe. We don't believe it'll work. We don't believe he'll provide. We don't believe he'll protect. So we try to take care of it ourselves. Will you believe? Jesus didn't come for unbelievers. He came for believers. And if you say, yes, I believe. Do whatever he says. And in that you will find the abundance.
of all that he brings as God. And the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you give us this kind of faith? This faith, we, we can't manufacture it. I can't, I can't sit here and squeeze real hard until I believe like this. Scripture tells us that faith, that belief is a gift from you. We ask you for that gift. We look to heaven right now and say, God, I, I want this gift of faith. And with that gift of faith, Lord, would you give me the courage, the trust to live out that faith, to demonstrate that faith by doing whatever you say. It's not in and of ourselves. I can't go to enough religious ceremonies. I can't do enough religious rituals to make myself right before you, to make myself believe like I should, to find the fullness of God. God, let me see the answer. Let me see it. Open my eyes. Believe. Obey. That we might discover your fullness. Thank you, Jesus, for what you revealed. Gosh, this is just the first thing. Six more signs. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.